0: Hey friends, welcome to the Better Bible Reading Podcast with Kevin Morse. And as you can tell, things look a little bit different from our typical episodes, and that is because I am not only uh, having the privilege of doing an interview episode, but I am doing one uh, beyond my inner circle of pastor friends, and we are venturing uh, to somebody that I discovered over on YouTube. Uh, who makes great videos about uh, different kinds of Bibles, and somebody who is very much uh, channeling their inner Edwards, so to speak, uh, in terms of how we approach the Bible and make the most use of our time and really think through our process of uh, what I talk about on this show as well, in terms of being better Bible readers. And so as many of you know, we've been beginning our study with Peter van Maastricht in theoretical practical theology. And I would be a poor teacher and friend if I did not take the opportunity to speak of Edward's connection to Peter Van Maastricht. We talked about it just for a moment earlier on previous episodes. Uh, But with that being said, uh, you would want to hear it from somebody much better than I and somebody who can uh, articulate it better than I can as well. So I am pleased uh, to welcome to the show Dr. Matthew Everhard. Thank you so much uh, for joining us
1: today. How are you doing? I'm very good. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be able to talk about Edwards, of course, which is one of my passions and joys, and also to talk a little bit about Van Maastricht as well. I think that's a really cool uh, little bridge of connection there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So if you don't know, um, Dr. Everhart, he is a pastor of Gospel Fellowship PCA, which is up in the Pittsburgh area, not too Mm -hmm. far outside. Um, he is also um, an Edwards scholar, which I'll let you talk about that definition of scholar. I really appreciated that point you made not too long ago about that. Uh, but scholar in, in the formal sense, because this is somebody who has actually written about Edwards, and we'll talk about that as well in terms of his uh, new book. Um, but he's also a YouTuber, for lack of a better descriptor. And as I mentioned, Um, great things on his channel in terms of comparing different Bibles and the things that I talk about as far as highlighting and note-taking and wide-margin Bibles and all of that. This is really uh, somebody who's leaps and bounds ahead of what we have scratched the surface on. So I'll put all of the uh, appropriate links in the description of this uh, episode so you can either find it on the YouTube or you can find it at betterbiblereading.com uh, whenever you look at the, the blog page for this episode. Uh, but yeah, really excited for all of the things that you're uh, bringing to the table. I tried to jot down all the books that you have available. Uh, Hold Fast to the, tr- the Truth, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, Commentary, Undeserved, uh, Christ Our Supreme Joy, Unknown, uh, Edwards Theology of, of Joy, a children's catechism i mean you really uh got a little bit of everything and was there anything i left out besides your your new book
1: uh maybe i don't know <laughs> um probably of, of those things maybe hold fast to faith my commentary on the westminster confession might be helpful to some but you know if you're tuning in and you're anywhere near pittsburgh we'd love to have you come to gospel fellowship pca we're a bible believing reformed church and uh love to have you we have services at 8:30 and 11 so just like to throw that out there.
0: Yeah, great. And by the way, uh, you can actually check out uh, Pastor Everhard's sermons, uh, which I've seen on his YouTube channel as well. So uh, yeah, if you're in the Pittsburgh area, please uh, check that out. Uh, Obviously, you all understand the segue that I've made, uh, which we're connecting the dots, so to speak, with uh, Van Maastricht's theoretical practical theology. Uh, We've been spending time very, very slowly, because we've been starting out with his best method of preaching, and there's some wonderful insights there, so you know we haven't even really dug into his theology proper, uh, but on the back of the book, with Edwards being uh, referenced and even given the the plug, so to speak, about uh, peter van Maastricht's uh supremacy in terms of a of a theology compared to other people. Um, I want to I want to connect the dots there, but maybe the best question that I could ask you uh, would really be uh, dealing with Edwards first and then bringing him into the conversation with Maastricht. So obviously I mentioned uh, you're an Edwards scholar. I mean, my goodness, you're wearing an Edwards hoodie. <laughs> so That's <right>. uh, you, <laughs> you are really, really the man for the task here. Uh, so I want to ask, cause I don't even think I know this. The answer to this question is, What really led you to become interested in Edwards? Was it the stereotypical uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God excerpt that you had to read in school? Or was it uh, your seminary days? Or what really happened and made you say, that's the guy that I want to latch Mm -hmm. on to, as opposed to Calvin or Owen or Augustine Mm -hmm, or somebody mm -hmm. like that? You Maybe uh, unpack that for us a little bit.
1: Sure, well, I think it's wise for everybody to have some kind of a dead mentor in their life, somebody who they can study over the course of many months and years and really just glean from their theology and It's probably best to even select somebody that's roughly in your own tradition so that you benefit from that person in a way that's a positive influence, although negative influences might be helpful as well to some extent um, so i've you know i've I've read quite a few people I do like John Calvin, and in fact, I kind of like different people from certain eras in church history, but the reason I selected Jonathan Edwards to be my study focus and just kind of my area of expertise goes back to my time when I was working on my doctoral dissertation at RTS Orlando. And I remember um, that the dissertation advisor, a guy called by the name of Steve Childers, he told us in the dissertation seminar that we should select a topic that could not only capture our attention... three or four years, or however long it took us to work through our dissertation material. But something that might motivate us so deeply at a really profound level that when somebody did our funeral many years from now, they might truly and rightly say that that studying this topic changed your life forever. And so I was looking at my own life and uh, realized that I was a person with a great amount of stress. I tend to be wired very tightly, I suppose, just by nature. Um, So I was feeling stress everywhere in my pastoral ministry and in my home life, not that either were bad, it was just so much to do and so many responsibilities um, that I really wanted to narrow in on the topic of joy in the believer's life. And so probably like many people who read Edwards today, uh, John Piper was the gateway drug that kind of introduced us to some of the major um, themes of Jonathan Edwards. And so from reading Piper, I decided to start reading Edwards. Yes, I had read Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God in high school. But uh, what I really started to do with Edwards is to narrow in on the topic of joy in his writings. And so for uh, the months and year or whatever that I was writing my dissertation, doing the study for that, I went through most of Edwards's major treatises, combing through them, looking for themes of happiness, gladness, joy, rejoicing, those kinds of terms, and then trying to locate them in Edwards's doctrine of the Trinity especially, and then making application to the life of the believer. So my dissertation uh, ended up becoming, uh, I forget the exact title, something like A Theology of Joy, Jonathan Edwards, and Eternal Happiness in the Holy Trinity. And then that dissertation uh, was eventually published as a book by uh, the JE Society or the Jonathan Edwards Society as a paperback. So you could get that dissertation if you're If you're interested so it was really just a quest for joy in my own life just feeling stress and burden and worry and concern and anxiety and and just wanting to uh think deeply on that topic of of gladness in god and that's really where um my edward studies began and then from there on i've continued to to contribute in various areas by the way um you gave me a lead and i totally missed it you asked me to say anything else that i'd written I do want to mention something that we can give away free to listeners today. Maybe you're planning on saying this later, but there's a new book coming out called The Miscellaneous Companion Volume Two, which is a study of Jonathan Edwards's miscellaneous notebooks. And uh, we're giving away my chapter for free as kind of an appetite wetter. Uh, you can get it via PDF and we could just post a link straight to it. So if anybody wants uh, my chapter, in that book it's on edwards and holiness his pursuit of holiness as a young person um i should have said that at the start but yeah we can give that away for free that'd be great
0: oh yeah no problem i was going to mention it later but yeah uh that'll be available for anybody watching this episode you can find the link right on the description yeah and uh, that that i have had a chance to look at and really really good stuff and um yeah, I would say probably the same thing for me in terms of Edwards. Uh, I remember having to read him. It may have even been in middle school. Can't really recall uh, an excerpt. I don't even think it was the whole sermon from Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of course, when you're introduced to that, you have the take it or leave it. I think it's almost always treated in a, in a negative or a pessimistic atmosphere in, in schools. And that was really the, the end of anything that I had come across with Edwards until. Uh, The Wonderful World of YouTube, where I started bumping into guys like John Piper and R.C. Sproul. And so uh, John Piper really has, uh, in my opinion, one of the things that he really shines in the best is if you go to Desiring God and you pull up uh, biographies, uh, there is some great lectures, just snapshots of people's lives, anybody from Edwards um, to Calvin, Augustine, I and mean, all these guys, and they're really great because they really whet your appetite to the life behind the, the work, uh, so to speak. And Edwards, when I when I heard his teaching on Edwards, as Ed, I think it was the title was Edwards, the Pastor Theologian, um, really good stuff. And of course, later on, my time in uh, going to Ligonier.org dot org and other places. Uh, you got guys, I just I grabbed a couple things I had at the house. Uh, Jonathan Edwards uh, by Stephen Nichols. You can mm-hmm. find that teaching series for free. This is probably my prized possession because I put out not too long ago online that I was looking for uh, the rational biblical theology of Edwards, which is written by uh, R.C. Sproul's mentor, the late John Gerstner, and uh, our previous pastor at our church, when he found out I was looking for it, he said, oh yeah, I have that. You can get it. And then I open up the front cover, and it's written and signed to him by Dr. Gerstner. And he's like, oh, yeah, he was my professor. And he's like, oh, yeah, I used to go to Ligonier when they were still up in Pennsylvania. And so you have all these connections. So uh, this book really introducing you to some of the theology of Edwards. And then with, we'll talk about this later, too. But one of the things that you uh, put out, which we can share as well, direct people to your channel, is a, uh, a reading guide for Edwards. And so that has really motivated me to grab whatever I had at at my house that I've kind of looked at or tried to chip away at a little bit, but have, you know, moved on to other things. So I grab, um, religious affections, which was, uh, probably not recommended to be the first thing you start, (laughs) but it's what I had. So I've been reading this and just, it's interesting the way that we can be introduced to somebody, uh, by an unforeseen circumstance or if you're in the middle of your, uh,
1: doctorate program. Hmm. Either way. You mentioned, uh, just to jump in here real quick, you mentioned two things that piqued my interest. First, Piper's short biographies. We actually just taught through that as a Sunday school class here at Gospel Fellowship. Um, Those short biographies, you can get them online, but they also come as a book called 21 Servants of Sovereign Joy. And we actually just did that as an adult class. And then the Gerstner reference, um, that pierces the heart too, because. As you know, Gerstner was the mentor of R.C. Sproul, and uh, both of those guys come from our presbytery here up north in western Pennsylvania, Ascension Presbytery. In fact, Gerstner was received into the PCA. Now, he didn't come in right away. He came a little bit later. But when he was received into the PCA, it was right here in this building here at Gospel Fellowship PCA. So we have a little bit of, uh, of history there. And I, too, have come across just by chance books that formerly belonged to Gerstner and I don't know about yours in the front, but in some books, Gerstner would have, he'd have a stamp with a seal in it. And people had to sign a covenant that if he gave it to them for free, that they had, they had guaranteed that they would have to read it within one year or receive the judgment of God on their <laughs> lives. And so I, I have at least a couple of uh, books that have Gerstner's seal and threat imprecation if you will uh, to read read or be judged by by the living god so that's there are there blood-stained thumbprints in there as well no the guy who had it (laughs) gave it to me and he read it because there's highlights all the way through so i know he he fulfilled his covenant (laughs) under fear of certain death i'm sure
0: (laughs) that's very interesting okay so of course we mentioned edwards um so speaking of edwards and now Turning the tables a little bit to talk about Maastricht. How were you first exposed to Peter Van Maastricht? Was it that you stumbled into him via Edwards or did you just happen to find out about him somewhere else later on? And then the connection started happening from there.
1: Um, I actually can't remember the first time I heard that name, but somebody had, uh, no, actually I have a friend named Tony Walker, who's, he's an Edwards scholar of his own right. Um, he sent me for free as a thanks for something I had done for him, the first volume of PVM when it when it first came out. And he alerted me to Edwards' devotion to this book. And so I was like, okay, well, cool. This is going to come out in seven, seven volumes or eight volumes over the next several years. So I figured I'll just kind of read them as they as they come out. So the first volume, which it looks like you're studying right now in some of your videos, I read that cover to cover. And then the second volume came out a year or so later, and I'm maybe halfway through with that one. I've been a little bit slow, but Lord willing, as they come out, I'll try to try to keep up with them.
0: Yeah, I, and I don't remember the first time that I heard about him. If you if you reference back to like older teaching series on Ligonier or or people talking about Edwards back, you know, years before this first uh, volume came out, uh, there, normally maastricht is in the conversation of guys who um are great but we don't know a whole lot about them in a broad sense because they have not yet been available in in english and so whenever you have you know guys like gerstner like back during this time when he wrote uh, there's several footnotes to maastricht uh, but you know that it's not an english <laughs> it's not an english reference this is he's having to Having to go to the Latin or something like that or mm-hmm. Dutch or mm-hmm. whatever got to be able to to reference him so the fact that we now have him uh if you go on YouTube I mean you can see your own video where you give a quick review of this first volume when it came out uh so it's really exciting that you have um now almost a, a portal to which you can see guys like Edwards where we don't know Latin the way that that Edwards and others did and so like our our reading availability uh, at one time was limited, but then because of guys uh, like Todd Rester and, and Joel Beaky committing something like this to English, uh, we now have the opportunity to make up for lost time, or we might say to make up for lost intellect. <laughs> and so now we can really see uh, the man behind the man, or as as we say often, uh, standing on the shoulders of giants, as giant as a man of as Edwards was. Uh, he didn't dream up everything out of out of thin air. Of course he 's going to the scriptures, but he 's also leaning on people like Maastricht and others. Uh, and so the fact that we have something like this now uh really is great, uh, because you know I'm a huge advocate of uh, read what we can, be selective, but when something is really endorsed by somebody like Jonathan Edwards, you, you want to perk up your ears and and pay special attention to it uh, mm-hmm. for sure. Probably another another question we could pose. Um, I mentioned it several times already. Uh, Let me read it. Uh, I I read it a couple episodes ago. Uh, I'll read it here. So Edwards is speaking. This is that uh, classic endorsement on the back of the book. Edwards is speaking about Maastricht's book. He says, as to the books you speak of, Maastricht is sometimes in one volume, a very thick, very large, thick quarto, sometimes in two quarto volumes. I believe it cannot be had new under 8 or 10 pounds. Turretin is in three volumes in quarto and would probably be about the same price. They are both excellent. Turretin is on polemical divinity on the five points and all other, all other controversial points and is much larger in these than Maastricht and is better for one that desires only to be thoroughly versed in controversies. But here's the key part. But take Maastricht for divinity in general, doctrine. Practice and controversy, or as a universal system of divinity, and it is much better than Turretin or any other book in the world, excepting the Bible, in my opinion. We talk about this a lot. That Edwards is not the kind of guy like like Luther uh, that's going to make this emphatic phrase that you have to say. Well, you know, he's just saying nice things, but we could probably you know push push the levels down a little bit. Edwards is somebody that's such a a deep finger, such a calculated man, that when he says something like this, I think we really have to say that he's really thought through saying something as significant as that about Maastricht before he says it. Um, so we have to assume that somebody that is this uh, influential to a man like Edwards uh, is not going to be necessarily just, you, know, scattered in a couple places in his works. I think it would probably be interesting. I don't know if there's been a work done like this. Uh, to trace the theological connection between Maastricht and Edwards in a, in a comprehensive way. Uh, but for you, as, a, as an Edwards scholar, um, do you see any particular works or maybe themes or something in Edwards that really
1: screams Maastricht? Well, that's a great question, and I'm glad you asked. Um, in fact, in preparing for this podcast today, I went through Um, the editions of the official Yale works of Jonathan Edwards, and using the searching function looked up as many references to Edwards on Maastricht as I possibly could find. And um, I hope this doesn't disappoint you, but there aren't as many as I would have thought originally. So, let's begin, if you you will, with uh, the quotation that you just gave, which actually comes originally from a letter. That Jonathan Edwards wrote to one of his prized uh, students and disciples, Joseph Bellamy. So if anyone's interested and you're really nerdy out there, you can find this letter and you can read it in its entirety in the works of Edwards, volume 16, uh, page 216. And in that volume, volume 16, you have all sorts of Edwards's personal writings, uh, tons of letters. So this is also the same volume where the resolutions and the diary and the personal narrative are found. So it's a really great volume. Volume 16 is one of my favorites. Um, And this is a really cool letter because it's written in 1746. And again, Joseph Bellamy is somebody who studied under Edwards in his own private home. Bellamy apparently lived with Edwards for some time and did some sort of a log cabin style theological education. Uh, Bellamy would eventually go on to replicate that same style of teaching other students for pastoral ministry, including Jonathan Edwards, own son. So this is a person that Edwards has a deep friendship with and a great familiarity, having lived with this person and also entrusting his own son's education to Bellamy when the when the cycle came full circle. Um, so the letter itself is very interesting because they talk about all kinds of things in this letter, including the sale of sheep. If you read the letter, the first couple of paragraphs are about some sheep that Edwards is trying to acquire through Bellamy. I have to remember in those days, they didn't have Amazon where you can order any product and have it just show up at your house. So a lot of these kinds of transactions were, were kind of difficult to carry out. Uh, many of the goods and wares, books and things like that, you had to go to Boston to be able to obtain. And so Edward spends part of the letter talking about hoping Bellamy can acquire some sheep for him before he turns the corner to talk about things theological. And in this letter, it's interesting that Edwards mentions the fact that he's been studying the Arminian controversy already at this time, 1746. The freedom of the will isn't going to come out for several more years later, but Edwards is already studying that topic. And he, the, the kind of research that he mentions doing is eventually going to bear fruit in Edwards's uh, magnum opus, Freedom of the Will. But then he talks about books for just a moment, because while uh, Bellamy is hoping to acquire some sheep for Edwards, Edwards is doing some work in uh, procuring some books on, the, on behalf of Bellamy. And this is where that great reference to the works of Turretin and Van Maastricht come in. And certainly we might think Edwards overstates the case here a little bit about Van Maastricht being the best except for the Bible. Except for the fact that, remember, this is a personal letter that he's writing to a truly good friend. It's not as though uh, the publisher had asked Edwards to say something nice about the book. And you know, if you've ever asked to do that, people yeah. always say you've got to. Every pastor needs this one on their shelf. That's just kind of like a standard line. But this appears to be Edwards's very sincerely held opinion because he states it in this private letter. And then he goes on to add a P.S. to the end of the letter. And he says something to the effect of, oh, you know what, I think I I think I think know a guy that uh, may have a couple of the books that we're talking about that you can get used for a cheaper price if you're worried about how expensive these things are. So in and of itself, it's a very interesting letter. Now, what I did is I went through many of the volumes looking for Van Maastricht. And as I mentioned, there's not quite as many as you might wish but i will tell you a couple of them if we have time does that sound yeah, good
0: oh yeah for sure
1: go ahead all right so um in the religious affections which edwards wrote that same year or published that same year 1746 there's only one reference to maastricht that i can find of any substance and um This is not altogether unusual for Jonathan Edwards, because if you or I were writing a dissertation, one of the things that we would try to do is cite as many sources as we can to demonstrate that we've done the research. But when you're reading Edwards, you have to keep in mind that you're reading a a one-in-a-generation genius who is a very original and creative thinker. One of, one of the points Edwards makes is that he draws what he believes primarily from Scripture, and he it does not depend on the tradition, so to speak. So, for instance, there's almost no references to John Calvin in Edwards's works. There is a couple at the beginning of Freedom of the Will, where he essentially says, I hold Calvin's position, but I don't depend on him. And so it's not surprising that Edwards wouldn't mention Van Maastricht a lot. But in one place in the Religious Affections, this is volume two, page 200, and, I'm sorry, 337. Edwards is speaking of the concept of Christian humility or meekness. And he says, and here's the quote, this, thus it is with the humble Christian, humility is, as the great Maastricht expresses it, a kind of holy pusillanimity a man that is very poor as a beggar, so is he that is poor in spirit. And so Edwards uses a very strange word. I'm not sure if anyone's said that you have pusillanimity before. If they had, whether you'd take that as a compliment or an insult, I had to look it up myself. But it's a word that means essentially smallness of spirit or meekness of heart. And Edwards says that he draws that that term from the works of the great Van Maastricht. And of course, in religious affections, Edwards has a lot to say about meekness and charitableness and um, love as true expressions of what a really truly converted person is. Um, There's a very interesting maastricht reference, probably one of the most interesting ones I could find in volume 12. Uh, Volume 12 of the official works is Edwards's ecclesiastical writings. And here He's talking about communion. Now, for, for those of you who may not know this, it was the communion controversy that got Edwards fired from the Northampton church. After 23 years of being their pastor, Edwards got fired over the communion controversy. Now, um, Edwards had inherited a system from his great, er, from his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, in which Stoddard had essentially an open communion practice, which in itself was controversial in its day. Solomon Stoddard allowed most people to come to the Lord's table, even if they had not joined the church in full membership with a a, a verifiable statement of conversion before the elders, which was standard practice in most reformed churches, that you that you would be necessarily a a communicant, a full communicant. Edwards doesn't like that, and he wants to roll it back to a, a more strict or a more strident testimony of faithfulness so that communion is only received by believers and not the open communion style that his grandfather had had. Now, this becomes a great controversy between Edwards and Northampton, because once you open it up, it's a little harder to close that gate back again. And so in volume 12, his his main document on communion, he cites Maastricht in a way that um, is is a definitive statement on Edwards' view for the Lord's Supper. And it has to do with the question of whether Jesus, at the original Lord's Supper, permitted Judas Iscariot to participate in the Lord's Supper or not. And that's a key point, because if Judas admitted, uh, I'm sorry, if Jesus admitted Judas to the table, then that would mean that Jesus knowingly allowed an unbeliever, in fact, one who is condemned to perdition, to participate in the sacraments. But in the Gospels, it's not entirely clear as to what point Judas leaves the room as Jesus is distributing the Lord's Supper. So here in this document, at a very poignant moment, uh, Jonathan Edwards cites Van Maastricht as, as stating that in John's Gospel, it's the clearest in terms of the chronological sequence of events. And according to Maastricht, John's Gospel indicates that Judas departed before. Jesus officially gives the Lord's Supper with his words that would become the words of institution. Mm. So Edwards then citing Maastricht, who cites the Gospel of John, Edwards then defends his position on communion only for communicant members with a proper testimony of saving grace. And this controversy, of course, is what's going to eventually cause him to be expelled from the Northampton congregation. Now, I've got a few other citations that I could mention, but uh, anything there, Pique your interest. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Two two things. Number one,
0: we know that uh, if we talked a little bit about Francis Turretin not too long ago, and we were comparing the different uh, systematic theologies that would be great choices uh, to use for a study like this, I think it's interesting that somebody like Turretin, who Edwards also references in that little quote in the letter, is known for his skill in polemics. So. If somebody wants to make a really tight distinction about something as important as the Lord's Supper and is known for their skill in that kind of thing, you would you would expect somebody like Edwards to lean on him. So it's interesting that he really stands by his words in this case, that he even thinks that Maastricht as a whole is a stronger uh, theologian in terms of his argument than than the heavyweight like Turretin. So it's interesting that he would at that point, he would gravi- gravitate to something that Maastricht is saying and, and lean on that now, i've never i've ever actually heard that, but I think it's uh i think it's a really interesting interesting point that you made as well another thing um I, really great point about the fact that Edwards isn't in the business of footnoting every other word uh the way that we would do our uh kind of official theological papers today um and yet I think that we can see in people uh, the spirit, for lack of a better phrase, the, the spirit of somebody uh, that, that they are indebted to. And so if you see, um, if, you, if you read my writings or if you listen to my uh, preaching style or the, even the way that I teach on the podcast, um, I'm not footnoting a lot of guys all of the time, but you might say, I can tell that you've really spent a lot of time listening to this person, or I can tell you read a lot of this person. it's kind of the the ethos of the way that you uh, dialogue or the way that you structure your arguments. And we could maybe say the same thing about Edwards. I obviously have not read uh, even close to what you have in Edwards, but I think the point of him saying that about Maastricht, as you point out, doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to have – you know, every quote from Maastricht is one point of his favor type thing to where if he really says this about Maastricht, you should expect five thousand footnotes, you know, but at the same time, we haven't spent all that long reading Maastricht, but even the um even the things that he has to say about his best method of preaching remember he he says, "I'm not here to give you a popular way to preach. I'm here to give you what I think is the best method because it seems to care for God's flock the best. And here's why you should care about the way you do illustrations. Here's why you should care about whether or not you use a three point sermon. Don't be an orator whose goal is to, uh, to hide your, your gotcha moment until the end. You know, preach in a way that's going to be beneficial to the people. And we could see that general principle playing out for Edwards in the controversy of the Lord's Supper. If Edwards really cares about the church, He's going to go against what is popular in favor of what he thinks is the best thing for them. And, you know, maybe you could say this is a stretch to try to make that connection. Uh, but I think that somebody who is as well read and even goes to the trouble of citing him at that point about the Lord's Supper, I think you can say that the, the ethos or the, the mindset or the spirit of his teaching is, is a lot in line with some of the things we've read about Maastricht, even though we haven't even gotten to stuff about the Lord's Supper yet.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, well, Edwards clearly believes that the real authority is the word of God itself. And so when Edwards backs up his positions on all things, he cites the scripture as the ultimate authority. But if you're looking in Edwards' writings for references to the creeds or to the confessions, of course, I'd be very interested in what Edwards said about the Westminster Confession of Faith and things like this. But the fact of the matter is he does not cite them very often. In fact, it's um, far more common for Edwards to cite an opponent that he is dealing with than to cite a theologian that he thinks adds some sort of weight to the argument that he's making now um, in the miscellanies when we turn to some of Edwards's more private writings we do find him referring to Maastricht again but here again it's not quite as much as we might have hoped there is an interesting miscellany miscellany number 160 in which Edwards is talking about the Sabbath day and in which which day truly is the Christian Sabbath? Now just to frame up the context here, uh, for the Jewish people, of course, the Sabbath was considered to be from Friday evening, sunset to Saturday evening, sundown. You have basically that day was recognized as the Jewish Sabbath. But we who are Christians, we celebrate the Lord's day, or the first day of the week, Resurrection Day. And so in Miscellaneous number 160, Edwards is discussing the transition from, um, from seventh day, observation to first day uh, lord's day the christian sabbath observance and here again he cites van maastricht as one who points out to him that um, that the transition seems to happen at the time of the resurrection itself and so the resurrection sa- i'm sorry the miscellany says i believe the abrogation of the jewish sabbath is intimated by christ lying buried on that day who was the Lord of the Sabbath, the creator of the world that rested from all his works and was refreshed on that day, is now held in the chains of death on that day. The God that created the world now in his second work did not follow his own example. The Sabbath was a day of rejoicing, but Christ says, when the bridegroom is taken from them, they shall fast and mourn. And then he adds a note, see Maastricht, pages uh, 932 and following. So, Edward seems to be, of course, defending what we would think of as the reformed view of first day, resurrection day, Sabbath observation. And he does so by, by way of appealing to Jesus's own death and resurrection. And he says the real day of joy then would be resurrection day, not necessarily the day that Jesus was lying dead in the grave. And so Edwards's point there is that it's resurrection Sunday that ought to be the, the Christian holiday for, for the Lord's people but again it's interesting that he he cites Maastricht as one from whom he can source that idea as a defense of a lord's Day Sabbath observation
0: yeah so it seems that he he uses the explicit citations sparingly, but when he uses them they seem to be at crucial point not I mean I don't want to say crucial points as if anything isn't crucial <laughs> for somebody like like Edwards but but still, uh, it is interesting that he, you can see that gravitation at those key moments in, in the argument. And so uh, that's uh, really interesting.
1: Yeah, that is interesting. And um, there's a couple other places that I wanted to mention really quickly here, yeah. and then maybe we can, we can summarize a few things. Yeah. Um, when it comes to Edwards' private notebooks, which is an area that I have a bit of interest in, for instance, his book Notes on Scripture and his blank Bible Um, Again, we may find ourselves slightly disappointed that Maastricht is not mentioned more often, but there are several occasions where Jonathan Edwards will simply cite um, a page from Maastricht. For instance, um, there's an entire sermon that Edwards preaches as a young person in volume 22, a sermon on zeal as an essential virtue of the Christian. And he makes a note to himself to one day preach a sermon on zeal because he's been inspired by something that Van Maastricht says. So we know that at least one time he read Maastricht and said to himself, I can't wait to preach on that topic. And so Edwards then goes on and he writes a, a sermon on, on holy zeal as being a virtue of, of the Christian. But in his blank Bible, where we, we might think that he would cite Maastricht more often and instead, what we find is that uh, he's far more interested in a couple of biblical commentators, Philip Doddridge, uh, Matthew Poole, and then Matthew Henry. So when we're looking at his blank Bible, those are the three authors that he comes to more often than not. But again, in some interesting places, let me give you one nugget here. In uh, Edwards's commentary on Genesis 1-1, the very first verse of the Bible, he cites Maastricht, and he does so in an interesting way because here in Genesis 1.1, he's he's dealing with the name or, or the word Elohim, which uh, for those who know a little bit about a Hebrew is a plural word with the word El or God as its root. And Edwards is commenting on the fact that Elohim is actually a plural, although it takes singular modifiers and verbs. And uh, there's been some discussion on whether or not that has any relevance to the doctrine of the Trinity, because, of course, the Trinity is the doctrine that God is one in being, but three in person. And so perhaps there's some connection there to the word Elohim in that it functions as one with a with a plurality of form. Uh, and so Edwards actually does take the position that the word Elohim connotes a doctrine of the Trinity. And interestingly enough here, who would you guess that he cites? He does cite uh Van Maastricht on this text. And he does so with, with uh with some force because remember, Van Maastricht's real contribution to academic theology was as a Hebrew professor. Now of course we think of him as a systematic theologian, but for most of Van Maastricht's teaching experience in the academy at Utrecht and other places where he taught, he he was a Hebrew professor. And so when Edwards cites Van Maastricht here, he's doing so as one of the premier authorities on the Hebrew language. And given that PVM also has uh, an expert overall comprehension of all things systematic theology, Edwards views Van Maastricht's insight into that word Elohim as being noteworthy, and so he writes that down in his blank Bible at Genesis one one. That's an interesting spot where he references him to.
0: That's interesting. I, and uh, those of you who are fans of Your Heart as Boss, uh, somebody like Boss, who's... Uh, Was noted. I mean, that they would say that he was so uh, incredibly gifted that he could have been plugged into any department at the seminary and done exceedingly well. Uh, But somebody that is known uh, very much for his uh, skill in the the Hebrew and the other ancient Near Eastern languages, but then uses that in a way to develop his Reform dogmatics or his biblical theology, and so that is interesting. uh, Those Dutch guys. Uh, the noteworthy ones, like Maastricht and, and Voss, have that heavy uh, giftedness in Hebrew, but then they utilize that for their systematic and biblical theological projects as well. Um, so, you mentioned, um, Dr. Everhard, that you, uh, you have read the Theoretical, Practical, Theology, Volume 1, which is the one we're in now, um, cover to cover uh Why do you think that our listeners, apart from the arguments that I've been trying to make for the last month and a half, uh, why do you think that they should really invest the time in this book, even if it's not going through it with me, but just in general, in your Christian life, we have to be selective about what we read. We don't have time to read everything, but what is it that makes this book, uh, in your personal experience, maybe even going beyond Edwards' relation, in your personal experience, what is it that you think should motivate them to invest their time to, to read this?
1: Well, probably everybody should have at least one systematic theology, whether it's a one volume or a multi-volume set that they know really well. Um, I, uh, pro- I think that for the most part, Burkhoff is about as good as it gets for the sake of brevi- brevity and comprehension. He's easy to understand, and he very adequately represents the Reformed tradition. So if I was going to pick just one, I might take berkoff I also have some, sympathet- some, uh, some great sympathy for John Frame, who is one of my professors. I do use his systematic theology quite a bit. But the, the real genius, in my view, of PVM is the way that it actually unfolds in that four-part system that he has. I, I love that. I wrote an article on modern reformation a couple of months back about how I love the fourfold method that he has. And basically, just to review, he starts off with biblical exegesis, which is where all Christian teaching should start. I mean, that's what we're doing here as Bible-believing Christians, as we're trying to expound the Word of God as the Word of God with its full authority. And so, every section, he starts off with some sort of exegetical portion. He then moves into the doctrinal. If we're going to understand the exegetical, we have to put it in some kind of categories that we can, that we can, uh, we can pin down that makes sense to the mind. And so we talk about categories such as theology or anthropology or soteriology or eschatology. And so when we're understanding the Bible, we have to put it into some kind of a basic construct framework. And so we call that doctrine. And then he goes into the third part, which is polemics, and in there, um, he often argues against. Uh, other other views, uh, problems, uh, difficulties, questions that come up in the in the mind of of the individual. Uh, how do we respond to this? That the atheists say, or that claim claim that the Muslims make. And so there, he's doing that elenctic work of working through perceived difficulties, uh, often very practical difficulties, as we're we're preaching and writing and teaching on these things. And then finally, the area that I think we benefit from most is is his application areas, which are entirely devotional. Um, I I wrote about this in that Modern Reformation article. I just love the way he applies it straight to the heart. And if we're completely honest, this is the area that many of the great works simply do not do well. Um, But everything, he takes it back to things like worship and repentance and faith and the gathering of the saints and, and faithful observance of worship. I just love the fact that every major section ends with a with a very a very warm and devotional application section. Of course, all the Puritans tried to do this as well. Um, but when you read PVM, it is impossible to read through his works without getting it that this man loves the Lord Jesus Christ. And there, there's nothing. Worse, in my view, than uh, a theologian or a biblical biblical commentator, that you do not smell um, the sweet rose of Sharon in their writings. And I think I think Van Master does that very well. You you really have a sense that this man loves Jesus. And um, you know, when I listen to other preachers, of course, I'm listening for certain things as a preacher myself. And and two of a trade never agree, so it's hard to not listen with some kind of critique. But I want to know, is the text there? How many times did you point me to look in my Bible and see the text? And then I'm looking for is is this doctrinally sound what you're saying. Is this does this make sense with the way the church has already in all ways articulated the truth? And then I'm I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but I have this objection. And if the preacher also anticipates that objection, then I know he's thinking as I'm thinking. But the real thing that I really want from any preacher is I want to know that this man loves the Lord and is pointing me to Christ. And in that sense, uh, you you can't do much better than PVM as far as reading um, a very well-respected and time-honored systematic theology that is comprehensive in scope and majestic in its uh, in its view of of God's sovereignty.
0: Yeah. That- Great, great point um, as I said, we haven't gotten into the meat of the theoretical practical theology because we've been going through the best method of preaching, which is what's offered to us the very first part of this book. but um, we talk about peter van Maastricht's, um explanation of theology, the doctrine of living to God through Christ. you see that practical element he starts out the bulk of his Discussion about theology as connecting doctrine to godliness. So he uses First Timothy to make that connection. And I think, really, just what you talked about there at the end with his fourfold method, um, you applied it to preaching. Um, it's his fourfold method as he goes through theology, but it's also directly connected to preaching. So I really think when we're reading this best, meth- best method of preaching at the beginning of the book, it's almost like a microcosm, or it's almost like a test case. Of his theology, uh, because he's showing us that these systematic things that we go through uh, the, trinity, the Trinity, the impassibility of God, all of this they're not abstract theological perceptions that we just transfer information from him to us in the brain, but they're supposed to have some kind of deep rooted impact in our hearts. And I think preaching is the great place to show that because he doesn't begin the book with. Best method of uh, giving a uh, I don't know a, a seminary lecture or how to uh, be a better communicator in general, but it's preaching. It's it's that task of the pastor to articulate the word of God in an effective way that goes beyond merely a transaction of information. And I think so. Just the way that you explained that at the end, I think that's really really helpful. And I mean, if that doesn't wet our appetite for Peter Van master I, I don't really know what will. <laughs> Um, to close, I wanted to ask this question because I think it's really valuable to, to round things off. And So myself, as the creator of BetterBibleReading.com and this podcast and the uh, video course and everything that you can find over on the website, my goal is to present to you the Bible and to equip you with the tools to become consistent and joyful and to uh, save your time, uh, save yourself from, you know, spinning your wheels and, and wasting time and doing bad methods and all of that. I could say that much the same of the kind of content I've seen on your YouTube channel as well, that you're really interested in helping people um, not listen to you primarily, but to interact with their Bibles to a greater extent. So I really appreciate that from you. So for the kind of things that we're putting out there to people, Why should we even care about guys like Maastricht or Edwards? Uh, It almost seems counterintuitive. Now, here we go with the polemical aspect of this. It almost seems counterintuitive to uh, what we're talking about all the time Uh, to then turn the tables or turn our attention to guys. uh, Why would we want to spend time really studying them even beyond this episode as opposed to just saying, go get into your Bible board?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, do that. Go get into your Bible more for sure. There's absolutely no problem with that. And do that as much as you can without any reservation. But it's not an either or scenario, is it, for us to read our Bibles or study other things? Uh, But in, in many ways, it's a both and, because we, like every other generation, has what we might call generational blind spots. There are areas that we can't see because of our limited a perspective in the same way that Edwards was blind when it came to slavery, and so was Whitfield and others in that day. Um, so we too have our own generational blind spots. And we have what C.S. Lewis one time called chronological snobbery, which is to say that we think we have it all mastered. We think we have it all figured out. And so we're snobs when it comes to history, because we assume that what what could any other generation know that we don't already know? I mean aren't we the most learned and intellectual people on planet earth that have ever existed well in some ways maybe we are i mean maybe we have the best internet technology and, and medicinal technologies and aircraft and things like that but um the ancients could do things that, that you and I can't do uh, one of them is read latin which is why we needed this <laughs> translation to come out because we stink in certain other areas and uh, a lot of the guys that have come before us they're great precisely because they didn't have the technological distractions that we have today. I was just reading earlier about uh, Origins' six-column uh, hexapla commentary on the, the the Old Testament Hebrew and, and Septuagint Greek and thinking to myself, what kind of person even has the time to write the Bible <laughs> in six columns and, and six different translations, including his his own Revised critical text of the Old Testament Septuagint. I mean, some of these guys are brilliant because they lived in a day and age when these things were valued and treasured, and they weren't spending time on Saturday afternoons watching some stupid golf tournament on TV. Yeah. And so, all generations have the ability to, um, to confront each other, to convict each other, to exhort each other to faithfulness. Um, for me, whenever I read church history and biography in particular, I find my heart thrilled. By the faithfulness of those who've gone before us. That is, after all, largely the point of Hebrews chapter 11, which uh, points us back to the courage and the faith of those who've gone before us. And if we uh, simply remember that uh, many generations have insights that we need to acquire, then it is, in fact, very, very helpful to find a few dead people um, from whom we are humble enough. Um, if we have the pusillanimity, to acknowledge the fact that that we need the insight of others and some of these guys like pbm and and edwards can be extraordinarily helpful and beneficial because they see things that our blind spots don't see we're like that horse on the road drawing the buggy that has those blinders on its eyes so it only sees what's in front of it but we don't have a full fully orbed perspective And having a few dead friends that have come and gone before you, I think, opens your vistas to all kinds of dawning realizations about God and his work. And I'm sorry to go on here a little bit, but another thing that just comes to my mind is the covenantal faithfulness of God throughout every generation. You know, um, his church, we think of as being the visible saints but also there's the invisible church too and the visible saints is what you see on sunday it's the people sitting in the pews with you um but the but the invisible church is that church that god has called to himself in every generation in every place and some of those are already dead and they've they've experienced uh, what revelation calls the first resurrection and they are with him in glory now and we we find ourselves um encouraged to know that the church isn't going to die out anytime soon. Uh, The movement that we call Christianity or the kingdom of Christ is not going to be squelched or quenched until the Lord's return. And so when we study people throughout history, we're reminded that God's providential and covenantal promises are true and sure that he is going to perpetuate uh, the saints and he he is going to protect us as a remnant people until he comes again. So I think there's a great encouragement that we draw from that as well.
0: Guys like Edwards, Maastricht, uh, friends over in Pennsylvania, um, that mm-hmm. the Lord opens things up in a way that gives us a greater appreciation for his word, not, not a lesser appreciation. And so um, the, the name of the game is to gather that kindling uh, for the fire of God's word. And that kindling, sometimes uh, we don't want to burn our friends, but, but we can benefit mm-hmm. from the heat that they put off. We might say it that way. Uh, well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Everhard, for joining me. Um, mentioned this before we started recording, but um, Dr. Everhard's new book, I was going to say it was stuck out on some cargo ship somewhere, uh, but I think just in the last couple of days, maybe, um, it has actually been uh, released uh, and available not only in ebook format, but in uh, paperback as well. Uh, holy living jonathan edwards 70 resolutions for living the christian life we will put a link to that put it up on the screen as well Um, but i know that you're thrilled that it's finally out and about and not stuck somewhere Mm -hmm. Uh, so congratulations to you for finally being able to um to tell your your book readers i'll be home for christmas (laughs) hopefully Uh, then i'll be stuck on some ups truck somewhere probably exactly But yeah, we'll put the link to that Um, as well. I mentioned um, he has a great amount of resources over on his YouTube channel, including a printable uh, Bible reading plan that is work at your own pace uh, that you can print out and put in the in your Bible to go through it. Um, A reading list of Edwards. If you're interested in Edwards, we talked a little bit about religious affections and uh, other things and the. Of course, his book on the 70 Resolutions, Uh, he's got links to um, a reading plan for Edwards, links to where you can find those online for free. Uh, So just a whole wealth of of content over on his YouTube channel. And so, again, thank you so much for your time and a really great conversation. So uh, we will hopefully approach our book study in Van Maastricht with a greater appreciation because of the things you've said. So. Uh, Wish you the best uh, up in Pennsylvania in the Lord's work at your church and uh, excited for all all the news that I hear about by being a subscriber on your YouTube channel. And so, again, just thank you so much.
1: Thank you, sir. I appreciate the time.